0: So I'd like to welcome you to the New Books Network Genocide Studies podcast. Today we're talking with Vladimir Giro about his new book, The Investigator, Demons of the Balkans War. And Vlad, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about yourself and what you currently are working on and what you're doing in life.
1: Hi, I would like to appreci- I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to all of you. I'm a Czech by nationality. I was born in Prague and I, I work for the criminal police and the homicide squad uh, for what, 10 years in Prague. And then, uh, then I decided to to change my career a little bit, and I went to Interpol, to National Central Bureau in Prague, where I uh, spent uh, several years on the organized crime, and uh, and then I decided to completely change my work, and I went to uh, for one year. I was working for Amprofor. It was the United Nations Protection Force in former Yugoslavia. I was appointed the head of the UN field security in Sarajevo, which was at the time under siege. So I spent literally one year in the war. Then, when I was about to well, the International War Crimes Tribunal was established in The Hague by the UN Security Council. And when I heard of it, I thought there might be something really interesting with my experience with the war, which was not easy. And then I thought maybe I can put my investigation skills into something that is related to that conflict. So I applied for the job and surprisingly for me, I went through successfully through the interview process and I was appointed as an investigator with the office of the prosecutor of the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. So that was basically the time between the the society, between the criminal investigation department in Prague and my role as an investigator with the tribunal. Well, the Tribunal I was assigned to a team that investigated crimes committed by Serbs on Croats and non-Serbs in Croatia and yeah. Bosnia. So I investigated that portion of, uh, of the war crimes uh, in Croatia and uh, in Western Bosnia. I have to say that the Tribunal had a number of teams and the teams worked on different crimes by different ethnicities. So there were teams who were crimes committed by Croats on Serbs in Croatia. I I think it's important to understand that there were teams in Bosnia Herzegovina that work on the crimes committed by different ethnic groups. So that uh, that your know, readers will understand that my book, one-sided, it's objective and what's written in the book is true, but it only deals with one part of the of the conflict and. Uh, So I didn't provide the the whole spectrum. It's more for the maybe for the politician or for historians. I wanted to talk about what I investigated and my team or the team that I work in investigated. So from that perspective, it's one sided, but it's true objective.
0: So I think one of the most important things that you have gotten across in this book is that uh, since the first time that there were war tribunal, Trials, which was for Nazi Germany, that the Hague has developed a more sophisticated system in dealing with war criminals, and you were essentially a part of bringing these people to justice. So um, what a lot of people might recognize from just their normal reading is that there's a lot of um, police work and a lot of hard and kind of dangerous duties that you did, in the process to get the information and to bring these criminals to justice and i thought maybe we should start out talking about operation little flower and how that was significant in your work
1: yes um i'll put it this way the, you mentioned the Nuremberg trials and also the tokyo trials which were a result of the world war world those tribunals were clearly the winners tribunals you know they were established by by the states that defeated Germany and Japan. And they had a full control of the territories and they could bring to justice whoever they choose to. The tribunals, the ICTY and then also the Tribunal for War, they were put together by the Council at a time where the conflict was still ongoing. So we, we did not have the same systems in place that would allow us to investigate in the same fashion that the Nuremberg investigators or the Tokyo Trials investigator work. So we have to be more inventive in the way we, we, do, we did our which at the time was also more dangerous. And uh, I will give you an example on what you asked me about the operation Little the flower. In the context, you have to understand one thing. We were working already since 1994, I joined in 1995. We put together indictments against the criminals that we believe were involved in the war crimes, but none of those criminals were in prison. The reason for that was that the states in the former Yugoslavia had no interest in arresting anybody. And the reason for that was very simple because if they arrest, the, let's say, Croats arrested the Serbs or Serbs arrested the Croats, they will create a precedence. And uh, they will be accused of picking on only on the other side, and to arresting for war crimes their own people was politically impossible at the time. So it was. So now we have the international community, like NATO, for example, NATO believed didn't have mandate for the arrest, and there was a reason for that. If you recall the NATO put I4 and S4 into Bosnia-Herzegovina as a result of the Dayton Agreement. The I-4 was supposed to implement the agreement, and the S-4 was supposed to... Oh, the leadership believed that by arresting the war criminals would bring back the, attent- the tensions in, the, in between the, the ethnicities, and also maybe hostility towards the NATO troops. So they had a very, inter- very little interest into this. So we had about seven issued by the tribunal. We had the judges in place, we had the prosecutor and the and the prosecutors and the investigators, everybody worked, but at the time, nobody in the prison. So Justice Goldstone, who was the, the first, he actually he was the second prosecutor, but de facto, he was the first prosecutor, because the first prosecutor was there several months and he had some particular issues. So Justice Golston was really the first prosecutor, realized that there's a problem with this. And then he came with the idea that maybe it would be better to issue the indictments under seal, so they would not be known to the suspects, which will, might allow us to get to them closer without them knowing that they actually wanted, so several of those indictments were were released, and then still nothing was happening, and until a justice the prosecutor, the things changed, and uh, I'm proud to say that my I was in the center of that change, because uh, we had also one indictee for the crimes committed in Vukovar at the Ovchara farm, where more than 265 people were murdered by Serbs and buried in a mass grave. And we had three inditees, which were the military officers, and we also had inditee Slavko Dokmanović, who was uh, mayor of Vukovar, and the evidence showed us that he was participating in that uh, terrible crime. So we put him on the indictment as a in seal indictment. And then by pure accident, I was uh, one day in December, I was uh, having coffee with a colleague of mine who was working in the team that works on the crimes committed by Croats on the Serbs. And then across the coffee, uh, through the chat, uh, she told me that she actually met Slavko Kodokmanovic and her team wanted to interview him as a witness. Well, she didn't know that he was indicted by us because it was sealed even within the office of the prosecutor. So I asked her whether she would be willing to share with me the contact information. And she said, yeah, no problem. I said, we also need to talk to him. And then, so she gave me the telephone number and address. And and I brought this with our team lawyer, Quinn Williamson. And I explained to him that it might be opportunity for was to put together a plan how to get him from hiding, because the client was hiding in Serbia, where we couldn't go and arrest him, and bring him outside under pretense that he will interview him as a witness. And so, then thought of it, and then we went to see the, the director of investigation, and eventually, we were taken to the office of the prosecutor, to uh, Jack Louis Arbor, And Clint explained to her the possibilities. What would this give us if it's successful? And um, Louise Arbor also asked, what will be the problems with it? And then Clint honestly told her, you know, if something goes wrong, somebody can get killed. You know, some of us or Mr. Dukmanovic, or some of those people who will be actually doing the arrest. And so and she thought of it and it was an interesting scene of we were sitting around the, around the table and then looking at Justice Arbor. And then there's a quiet in the room. And then and she says, yeah, we good got to try, you know, if nobody else is willing to do it, we've got to do our own luck. And so she decided that we are going to go for it and we will try to to bring Dokmanović outside of Serbia to the territory which will be under our jurisdiction and to arrest him. So, she, we put, she put together a team, it was all strictly confidential, not many people knew about, about the operation. And we call it Operation Little Flower, because Mayor recalled that mayor of New York was nicknamed Little Flower. So we thought that if he used a Little Flower for the mayor of Vukovar,
0: the,
1: that there was a mayor in New York nicknamed Little Flower. So you just pick up that name for the operation, which then, of course, um, became known only after we completed it successfully. So we worked on that plan and we thought that it might actually work very quick. We put a call to to uh, Mr. Dukmanovic. He was called by a colleague of mine, Mr. Kevin Curtis, who is a British investigator. And then... Uh, they had a chat on the phone with interpreter and Mr. Lukmanovic agreed that he will come across the border to the area which was controlled by the United Nations in, in Vukovar, which was called UNTAES, United Nations Transition Administration. And then that he will show us the places where the kurds committed the war crimes on the Serbs. So the agreement was that we will call him the following day and confirm it. When, when Kevin called him for the second time, Mr. Dukmović completely changed his mind and he said he would not go to Vukovar because he was afraid that he would be arrested by the Croats. So we realized that he didn't know that he was indicted because he wasn't afraid of us but he was afraid of Croats. So Kevin maintained the call and explained that we will come back to him and that we will see how things can develop and then we realized that, that it will not be that quick operation, we will have to work a little bit more on it. So Excellent. we started to prepare the, the plan, the longer plan, which we didn't know really how long it will take, but we needed to do it by Bula, uh, Because in July the first, the border control over the territory of that Eastern Slavonia, which was controlled by the UN, would come under the Croatian administration, and then they'll be very unlikely that which would agree to come across the border, which was already controlled, not by the UN, but by the Croats. So there were certain limitations. So we worked on that plan together with um, Ambassador Klein as American ambassador and general uh, from reserve who was in charge of this administration. We also had a uh, person there from the US uh, military intelligence who worked for Ambassador Klein and then we decided to use a special police force who was providing the security for Ambassador Klein as a whole unit to work on it, because we realized very quickly, if we put together a team from that administration, which will be different nationalities, there might be difficulties to a control the information, but also there might be a language barriers between those different ethnicities. We had to make sure that those people who would be affecting the arrest actually understand each other. So the team was formed. There was a defense scenarios put together how it might happen that uh, Dokmanovic would come across the border. The first one would be that Kevin would go and Dokmanovic would come with him across the border. The other option was that Doc Manavid would come in his own car and cross the border. So we worked on all those scenarios. And eventually, we decided to, to go and try it. So I uh, went to Serbia via Budapest. I, I flew to Belgrade. I rented a car and then just drove to Sombor, where Mr. Beckman was hiding, to do uh, undercover surveillance. And Kevin would come under agreement with the which in a UN car openly across the border from from Croatia to Serbia. And my role was to see whether there was any police or any maybe crooks waiting for Kevin and, and his interpreter. So I could warn them before they go and enter the house. And also my role was to make sure that if there was something wrong, something wrong happened during the interview, I would be able to telephone the prosecutor's office. I let them know that there's an incident. So I, w- I was waiting for Kevin to come in, and then he drove in, he met then they went inside of the house, I was waiting outside, and then after several hours, Kevin came out, and clearly on his own with the interpreter, and just drove away. So uh, I followed them, there was no incident with the local police, you know, they crossed the border, eventually I crossed the border, Story. The story was that Dokmadovich was afraid of the Croats across the border. But when Kevin was leaving, there was a family members who came around and they had a chat. And then Dokmadovich said that he had a house in the territory in Croatia that he couldn't go to and he couldn't sell it. And then in the past, when he was a mayor of Vukovar, he could talk, and to, he could talk to General Klein. As administrator, basically whenever he wanted, but now he couldn't because he cannot cross to Croatia. So Kevin offered him an opportunity to have a discussion with Klein about the selling of his house. We took a of which agreed, and then uh, we talked to Klein, who was at the time in New York uh, at at the UN headquarters, and asked him if he could his, use his name for this thing operation. And he said, "Of course, no, it's no problem." So Kevin went back. The same arrangements. I was following him, make sure that nothing happens. Kevin handed over a note with telephone number to to Dokmanovic and, and told him if he wanted, he can call the assistant of uh, General Klein, and then agree on a meeting. So indeed Dokmanovic telephoned him, and they agreed that um, that. Fine would provide him with VIP escort, would give him a guarantee that he would not be arrested by the Croats and he will sort of be able to come to the headquarters and discuss with the scene was set. We had to wait several days for the operation to be put together. And indeed, on the given date and time, the Kmorovic crossed the checkpoint on the Serbian side and walk on the bridge over the Danube River, where the VIP escort was parked. And then he entered the the car and headed towards Croatia. You know, we were all waiting on the other side with the SWAT team prepared. And then the SWAT team blocked the road. So. The car with Dokmanovic had to make a left turn, sharp left turn, into a complex of the building complex, which was actually the headquarters of that SWAT team. And then they stopped the car, and the SWAT team came, pulled Dokmanovic out, and there was a friend of his. They pulled him out as well, took him aside. They searched Dokmanovic, took a bag away from him and all his personal belongings. And then I stepped into it, and then I. Red read the Miranda, the, the version of the Miranda rights, uh, where I informed him that he was indicted by the Tribunal for War Crimes in Ofchara, that he was charged with the great breaches of Geneva Conventions and war uh, and the crimes against humanity, and then he would be taken to The Hague. And then he was handcuffed, he put a hood over his head, and put him back in the, the, the vehicles under the SWAT team. Uh, We were in about 15 minutes at the arrest, we were already heading towards the airport in Chepin, which is a small uh, airport close to Stavonia, which was already under territory control by the Croatian authorities. And there was a Belgian Air Force plane waiting for us there with a clearance for the departure. We got there, we had the medical personnel there to check on the health of Mr. Dokmanović to make sure that he was uh, able to, to fly with us. He was cleared for, for the departure and then something happened that nobody expected. The Croatian police arrived and they requested the names of the people who will be boarding the plane, even though there was a pre-negotiation that we will get the clearance for the flight. So. The argument started. They saw a man with hood head. They, they wanted to know who that person was. You know, we were not willing to tell them. So in a couple of minutes, the pilot calls us telling us that his permission to, to depart was so we got stuck in the middle of of a problem, which was the one that we didn't expect it. We expected the problems to be in Serbia or in a territory Controlled by UNTAES, but certainly not in Croatia. So we was told, everybody was nervous. We were surrounded by the SWAT team of the Polish police. On the outside was the Croatian the policeman demanding the information, which we were not willing to do. It was a drama, and then eventually came to Clint that he had the deputy. He knew the deputy prime minister of Croatia, Mr. Ivica. Kostović, from the previous dealing with him, so he telephoned uh, the deputy prime minister and asked him if he could assist. Explained to him what was happening. and Kostović, luckily for us, luckily for everybody, understood that. He then handed over the telephone to the police officer. They had a discussion in Croatian, and shortly after, the pilot informed us that we were cleared for the part. So we got on the plane, we shut the doors, turned on the engines, and then a few minutes you we were up in the air. It was a very steep takeoff. You know, we were trying to get outside of the, the, the airspace of Croatia or the former Yugoslavia for that sake, heading towards Hungary. Everybody was quiet on the plane. They we were still nervous because anything could happen. For example, the traffic control ordered the plane to go down back to Croatia. Even if it was a military plane, the pilot would have to obey that. So we knew that we had to wait until we got off the, the airspace of Croatia. So eventually we got Then the flight was quiet. We gave Mr. Bikmanovic the indictment in Serbian, we could read. And then he asked for his bag. And the bag was in the custody of Kevin Curtis. And Kevin says, no, I'm not going to give it to you. Why do you need this? And he said, I need to put my indictment into it. And he said, no, give it to me. I will put it in. After some time, Dokmarovitch asked for the bag again because he wanted to have a cigarette. And Kevin said, no, I'm not going to give it to you. I can give you my cigarettes. And then said, no, because you tricked me. I, I don't want to smoke your cigarettes. I want my bag. And not understand why he wanted the back so desperately we we flew to the the Navy air Base in Falkenberg, close to The Hague in the Netherlands, landed there. There was a police waiting for us, the Dutch police they took us in a convoy and drove us to the prison in Scheveningen, which was the u n detention center in The Hague, and then we went through what was supposed to be the official handover and then Clint handed over, Clint Williams handed over Dokmanovic to the authorities of the prison. They signed off on it. And then we were supposed to do the inventory of the items that Dokmanovic had on him. So we started, which was what in his pockets initially, because we had it in an envelope. We sort of made a list of it. And then Kevin opened the bag and put a hand into it. And he pulled out a loaded revolver from it. So the whole time, Dokmanovic was trying to get his bag because he knew that he had a gun in that bag. So Kevin luckily didn't give it to him because had he given it to him, the whole operation would end up completely differently because he would have been the only armed person on that flight. So we definitely wouldn't be heading to The Hague. So the operation ended up. Dokmanovic was in the prison. Nobody was hurt. There was no major incident. And now the prosecutor had in sleeve an argument with the international community and with NATO. She went to talk to them. I said, listen, if my office can do this, if a bunch of police officers and lawyers and a a small SWAT team can arrest war criminals without any incident. How can you argue that your 60,000 troops in Bosnia-Herzegovina with all the intelligence means that you have, cannot arrest those war criminals. And indeed, about two weeks later, the British SAS Special Forces went for the first arrest by NATO in Priedor, which is in the western part of Bosnia, where there was an indictment against three people for genocide. So they arrested one. The other one put up the defense that they shot him dead. And the third one escaped to Serbia, where he was hiding for several years. And then he was actually uh, handed over by the Serbian authorities after Milosevic uh, was arrested. And he was the first the trial for, for the war crimes and, and sentence. So this story about the Operation The Flower, no matter how exciting and potentially dangerous it was for us, it has a very important... Role. It was a complete breaking point in a situation in the life of the tribunal because after that the NATO and later on the member states started arresting the indicted war criminals so that the tribunal can start prosecuting those.
0: One of the things that I think is really important about uh, your discussion of the arrest of Slavko Dokmanović, is that when he was finally brought to trial, he committed suicide. And that kind of set no precedent in the tribunal. How did you deal with that?
1: You know, before Dr. Marevich committed suicide, we went through the full trial. You know, uh, it's, it's important to understand that You know, he he didn't kill himself after he was arrested. You know, he got a defense counsel. He pleaded not guilty at the court. And then uh, we went through the full trial, full prosecution trial, full defense trial. And about 10 days, two weeks before the verdict was supposed to be heard, he killed himself. Now, now, uh, I think that if you look at it from a human point of view not necessarily as a, yeah, I I will get to it as a well, human point you know we brought in the witnesses the people that uh, that suffered during the conflict and it was from them it was very difficult to travel to the different country to expose themselves to cross examination by the defense counsel you know, to to bring the justice to those people who were murdered of Chara and to their relatives who survived and they were affected by, by this horrendous crime. And they are still until today. So, yeah, there's a dimension of it. You know, nobody wanted Mr. Dick Mollinger to be dead. We would not, the tribunal wouldn't give him a death sentence. You know, the, the tribunal can only give a life sentence. So the worst he could do was the life sentence. He administered to himself the the punishment that Chiblin would never give him. But we didn't want to be dead. We wanted the justice to be made. We wanted that people were here, that somebody was sentenced to prison for the crimes committed at Ovchara. And then that by the by the suicide that failed, so we basically were at a starting point, so it was a tragedy for the families of those people who were murdered. It was a tragedy for Doc Moneridge's family because he had a family, and it was tragedy for them themselves because they went through something which was not very pleasant the, the trial and everything so there also And then for us as professionals, you know, we put uh, two years of our life into it because we wanted to make sure that we succeed in it. They brought alibi that we managed to prove was inaccurate or rather it was false. And we managed to prove it in a court that the alibi was false. You know, we we put so much effort into it so that we would have the first person indicted for the war crimes at Chara prosecuted for it. And then by the suicide, it all went down. So we had to start again. And so it was a loss for everybody. In our mind, the worst was the families, because they they suffered during the war. They lost their loved ones. They had this hope that finally a justice would work, and it didn't. So it was a very difficult time. Uh.
0: It sounds like that, you know, you've broken a procedure that had been established 30 years earlier in the Nuremberg trials, which was based almost entirely on documents, but your investigation involved actually being an charge yourself and seeing the mass graves and seeing the evidence for yourself before you brought someone like Dukmanovic to justice. So, it sounds like a, a priest, police procedural novel that you would read in the mystery section, but it has a lot more in-depth to it. You brought in a dendrologist, the FBI, the ATF. This was not just a, a single organization or a single effort to bring this man to trial. And... Um, it's commendable that you can tell this entire story with the intent that this was going to be the first war criminal brought to the Hague. And unfortunately it had the ending that it did. So I wanted to ask you as you moved forward with going after other war criminals, did this change your approach any?
1: Not necessarily. The The approach you know, we had was pretty much uh, the same. No, the, the true story is about what you said just now is, you know, we did it as a police investigation. You know, my colleagues, uh, Kevin Curtis, Dennis Milner, two British police uh, police officers, the lawyer who worked on the team at the beginning, uh, we had an analyst, Serge Krieger. I'm talking about the early days team that actually started with this investigation. You know, we worked together. And uh, we were gathering the evidence. And evidence for us was first the interviews with the victims and the families, and also people from like monitoring missions, which was uh, the EU, European Union had a monitoring mission, and the people were there by the end of the, we- the war, so they were good witnesses for us. So, so we interviewed pretty much everybody we needed, and then there was this exhumation. I spent seven weeks at Ovchara, with a team from the physician for human rights and doing the exhumation. And then so it was exposure to not only to the, the story of the of the victims, but also actually removing the bodies from, from the mass grave, which was professional experience. I don't think that any one of us who went to work for the tribunal was prepared for it. You know, it's one thing for the anthropologists or pathologists that day by day work with the dead bodies. They're, they're kind of used to it and prepare for it. Now, for us investigators, you know, when I was working on a homicide in Prague, I was at the exhumation site of one body, one time. There was a whole team that worked on it. So my role as an investigator was limited. Here at Chara, all of us who came there in August, uh, on that side was prepared for us. We took the shovels and, and basically shoveled like everybody else. There was uh, professors from the PHR, Clint Williamson as a lawyer, took the shovel and me as an investigator and we wanted to make sure we find the grave. Of course the actual then the removal removal of the body was done by the by the specialist. But at the early stage of that, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we actually locate the grave. And find the dead bodies in it, and then what you said about the alibi? Yes, you know we brought a dendrologist into the courtroom because the alibi video that they the, the defense team provided, I actually found out that the locations that they were talking about on the video are not at the places that they said they were. But who are, who are, who I was to prove it to the judges? looking for an expert who would take my findings and put it into a science. And because on the video, there were trees depicted, we thought the best would be to use a dendrologist. So we pick up uh, Mr. Paul Kavosh. He was a specialist from the United Kingdom, who we brought to Ovchara and uh, to Vukovar. So he observed the place and he made a report, and eventually he testified together with me and with the FBI expert to prove that the alibi was false. So, you know, in the different trials, we did the dendrologist, but we also had the exhumations, and we also interviewed people, interview witnesses. So the, the methodology we used was pretty much the same. You know, there were some specialities, like the documentary, also did the arrest, which was critical. And we brought the dendrologist into the trial, in, in some other trials, we brought some other important people, you know, like in one trial, which was not mine, but, but uh, Secretary Madeleine Orbright was called as a witness, for example, and she testified, you know, about the establishment of the, of the tribunal and about other important things. So the work of the tribunal was professionally very interesting and very rewarding. Sometimes, unfortunately, as it is in life, you know, we would have, wanted to achieve more results and faster, but, you know, we live in the realities.
0: And then after you completed the Duk- Dukmanovic trial, you moved on to what would be known as bigger prey in the whole um, Balkan genocides of Arkan and Milosevic. Can you talk about a little bit what you had to do to bring those war criminals to justice?
1: I mean, the, the next project we, we had, actually, there were two. There was one on Dubrovnik, which was the protected city by UNESCO, which was destroyed during the war by, by the Serbs. And then the, at the same time, we also had a project, which was focused on Žilko Ražnatović-Arkan. Žilko Arkan was a criminal before the war. And then he came back to Serbia just before the war started and then he formed from the the football hooligans group that he actually chaired a special unit which was called Arkan's Tigers and then he used those uh, that unit in Croatia and in Bosnia Herzegovina particularly in towns of Sanski Most, Zvornik and Bihać where they killed a lot of civilians and then they looted a lot of shops and, and property and, and brought it back to the base in in, uh, in the territory of Croatia, which was controlled by the Ser- by the Serbs, excuse me. And so there was a big project for us to work on Arkan investigation, but it was all part of the big picture, <clears throat> and for us the big. Pitch- Big picture was indictment against Slobodan Milošević. Naturally, we were working on the indictment for Croatia. There were two more teams that dealt with the crimes committed in Bosnia-Herzegovina and and in Kosovo. Kevin Curtis, who I mentioned before, as my teammate who worked um, on Dokonovic's arrest. And he moved and he was... Heading the team that investigated the the war crimes in Kosovo and he worked on the indictment of Slobodan Milosevic and then another team and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Kevin Curtis actually in my book has a whole chapter because he was the one who also arrested Slobodan Milosevic. He was dispatched by the Office of the Prosecutor to Belgrade after the national authorities arrested Slobodan Milosevic and put him in a prison but it wasn't clear whether the, the national authorities would actually hand over Milosevic to the tribunal because it was politically very really difficult so Kevin was waiting for the decision by the uh, Serbian authorities and then eventually eventually they decided to hand him over and so Kevin was the one who formally arrested Slobodan Milošević and brought him to first to Tuzla to the US military base Camp Eagle from where they were transported by the SAS the British special forces to the Hague and Milošević was handed over to the to the tribunal and 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 prosecuted unfortunately he died during the trial so my team was working on a number of projects, but of course the biggest project was the, the indictment against uh, President Milosevic. And then in course of that, we were still discovering new war crimes as we went along and working on indictments. And we indicted, for example, Mila Mrksic for the Ofchara and uh, Veselian Slyvancanin. They were both military officers from the Yugoslav army. Then uh, Milan Martic and Milan Babic, supporters from the so-called Ukraina region for war crimes you know, committed against the Croats. We indicted, indeed, Shilko uh, Rajnatović-Arkan for the crimes in Sanskimos. But we were also trying to uh, indict him, you know, for Zv- Zvornik and Bielina. Those indictments were almost completed when Arkan was executed in Belgrade. So we didn't finish the other two investigations. You know, we indicted military officers for the crimes in Dubrovnik. That was another part of, uh, of the project that I work on. This is all described to some detail in my book, The Investigator.
0: At one point, you and Milosevic were alone in him being transported to The Hague for trial. What was that like, being in the presence of a war criminal?
1: I think you got it wrong here. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) It was Kevin Curtis.
0: Oh, it was Kevin that was stuck with Milosevic in that Yes. So um, since you were involved in, in getting some of these bigger names and getting Milosevic and getting Arkan, you've had mixed results. You had another suicide that took place. Um, a lot of people had predicted that Milosevic himself was going to commit suicide during the trial, which he didn't. What do you think was the most important outcome of the ICTY? I
1: think there was a several <coughs> important Outcomes of it. The justice, and a big word, but uh, the justice for the common people. Now, uh, terrible things happened to the people in former Yugoslavia on all sides, on all sides. And then the local judicial and police and local authorities were unwilling to investigate and prosecute. For the war crimes, and if they were, they was always on, only on the other side of the conflict, and naturally they wouldn't have access to those people because they will be on the territory of the other countries. So the need for the international war crimes tribunal was because there was a deadlock, and the countries that came out of the former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia Herzegovina, were incapable and very often unwilling to deal with the war crimes. So the tribunal managed to bring some of the most important people to trial and to punish them. The other important, I think, aspect of that was that by removing those indicted war criminals, starting from Milošević, but also if you look at Shechel, you know, if you look at Karadzic and Mladic, it allowed the societies to move forward. Had they stayed there, <clears throat> there would be status quo. Nothing would have changed. Now, whether those countries really move forward and whether they were successful or not, that's completely different issue. But had those people stayed in the politics and in the army, certainly nothing would have happened. So I, I believe that the importance of the tribunal was also allowing the society to move forward, to start the healing process, which is unfortunately long and painful, but, but it was a good start. You know, we thought about the justice, you know, how, how people feel about it. Just imagine yourself, and I don't want anybody to be in the same position. Just imagine yourself that somebody all of a sudden will kill your family, burn your house, steal your things. And then one day, somewhere far away in The Hague, somebody gets prosecuted for war crimes, but not the person who actually committed that crime, but, uh, but somebody was responsible for it. Now, would it be justice for you as a person? You know, the best, the best way I'm convinced would be if the local authorities actually did their work because it might be quicker and then be more visible than to do it remotely. But but if there was no willingness to do it locally, the tribunal had to do it. You know, if I may go back to Ofchara, you know, we... Dealt with the military people and then with Okonavich. But there were 18 shooters, 18 people with the guns who actually murdered those people at Ovchara. So if you look at that, we didn't actually prosecute them. So you will say, no, the tribunal really didn't do the job. But Caravella Ponte, who was the prosecutor after Luis Arbor, came to agreement with the newly established prosecutor, war crime prosecutor in, in Belgrade, uh, Mr. Vukcevic, and then agreed that if the, if the Serbian authorities expressed their willingness to prosecute, she would, Karola Ponte, would hand over the evidence that we collected to the prosecutor Belgrade. And then, so they made agreement and then the evidence that we collected in the tribunal against the actual shooters was handed over to the prosecutor in Belgrade and then with a lot of difficulties but eventually the shooters were prosecuted not all of them because some died in between uh, the time then they were charged with the crimes and the the actual proceedings happened but if i'm not mistaken Taking, I think, 15 of those shooters were actually prosecuted uh, for the killing of the people of Chara. That I think is is much better administering justice when it's actually done locally, because the Serbs prosecuted Serbs for the war crimes against Croats. But I repeat what I said at the beginning. Unfortunately, at the early days, nobody was willing to do it. It was a healing process. And the political changes in those countries that only allowed that process to be that process to be starting and and the prosecution be done.
0: I think that's a really good point because when I was in Serbia in 2001, Carla Del Ponte was the most hated person in Serbia. But the fact that she could break that ground and had that evidence over and have these people tried by their own people proves that international justice can work. Um, I think one of the phrases that you use in your book, very humbly, is that this was all done through nifty, honest police work. But I think there was a lot more that went into this on your side and everyone else's. And I thought I would ask you, do you imagine 50 years down the line that people are still going to be put on trial like they are for the Nazi war crimes for Balkan genocide? Are they going to be trying ninety-two-year-old men who were part of these shootings in fifty years? For the from the evidence that you've collected,
1: you know, honestly, I certainly hope so, um, because the you cannot really legally not, not to deal with the war crimes. Right? There is a there is no time limit for it, and then. Of course, and I said it before, the best scenario would be to deal with that now. uh, As soon as, or or maybe even 20 years ago, if you you look at that, you know, right away. But unfortunately, it doesn't work, and it didn't work. And then things were done, and then uh, some people were prosecuted by the tribunal. We actually processed 161 of those. There's no question that the tribunal was the most successful tribunal of all those, because we dealt with just everybody that we indicted, one or the other way. But like for example, the ICTR still has fugitives. So we were successful, there's no question about it. And it's not because I'm saying that, but because it recognized internationally that ICTR was a successful tribunal. But there are many, many more war criminals out there. Not only in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also in Croatia and Serbia, that the justice hasn't reached yet, and uh, and I certainly hope that if the evidence comes forward, that the local authorities will be able to more and more actually to deal some deal with this and prosecute those people, regardless when it is, because I just can't imagine the professional prosecutor or professional police officer who just uh, never mind, you know. When when he has in front of him or her evidence of mass murder, mass rape, or a torture, that they will just say, "Okay, no problem." I, I just don't believe that the professional investigators and professional lawyers would just go for it. I'll be very disappointed if they did.
0: Well, Vladimir, I really appreciate you talking to me about your new book, *The Investigator*. Demons of the Balkan War, I think this book is groundbreaking in the study of genocide in general and as well as into the Balkans and understanding what took place in a previous century. Uh, So thank you very much for talking with me today.
1: I I would like to thank you for the opportunity and I really hope that your readers will learn something from it. Um, It is written almost like a detective story, some people say, but it is not, it's true. Everything which is written in true is based on facts. And as I made a mistake, honest mistake somewhere, but I hope I didn't. So this is a true story of policemen from different countries and lawyers that came together and uh, with aim to bring to justice the war criminals who committed those war crimes in the territory of former Yugoslavia. I believe that the book has something to say in general terms, not only about the conflict, but also about the the proceedings, about how we went around or about to do our jobs in very difficult conditions. And I know, for example, the, the arrest of Slavko Dokmanović is used as a legal precedent in some other cases. So there is something good on what we did. I just hope that I wrote it in a book That will be also interesting for people who know very little about the former Yugoslavia or very little about the investigation of war crimes. Once again, thank you for your time and I appreciate that I had the opportunity to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Vladimir.